Welcome to Books at Work, the best and most useful bits of business books. I'm Anna Hughes and my professional purpose is to help people love their work. I hope you take at least one thing from our Books at Work conversations to make work better. All strategic leadership is really about is knowing how and when to ask better questions. You don't have to know anything any more than anybody else does. In fact, knowing more things may be a handicap. That's Alicia Mackay, strategist and coach and author of You Don't Need an MBA, Leadership Lessons That Cut Through the Crap, our book for this week's episode. Before we get into You Don't Need an MBA, congratulations to Bernadette Sharkey Burns, winner of Beyond Burnout, a book that a lot of our Books at Work community connected with. Thanks everyone for all the feedback. Remember, let me know what you think of the books or follow Books at Work on Instagram and you'll go into the draw for a free copy of our latest book. Let's get into our speed read of You Don't Need an MBA by Alicia Mackay. You Don't Need an MBA doesn't have a contents page. It has a syllabus page covering five modules, flexibility, decisions, systems, performance and influence. These are some of the gaps that Alicia Mackay has identified during over 30,000 hours of experience in strategy, leadership and change. This book is about opening the minds of good strategic leaders to something new to help start us to stretch. And that's how the module on flexibility starts. Strategic leaders are stretchy, according to Alicia. We need to find and work on our intellectual flexibility. It'll help us work with the increasing complexity and lead our teams through change. We talk to Alicia in more detail about this in a minute. But flexible leaders are those who are attuned to the environment, both internal and external. They take responsibility, they seek learning, they embrace change and they uphold values. On the flip side, fixed leaders are those who lose touch, make excuses, seek control, avoid discomfort and follow the rules. Strategic leaders and strategic thinkers are human with the unique ability to go beyond what's in front of them to notice and store information and use it to plan for things to be different and change our behaviour for the future. We need to nurture this, according to Alicia, and learning how to think and make good decisions are key to this. Alicia's signs that you need to learn how to make better decisions are these. You waste time going around in circles, decisions don't stick, and your teams feel uncertain and don't know what to focus on. Making good decisions is about time travel, learning from the past, making good choices about the present, and planning for the future. Strategic leaders make good decisions that convert uncertainty, which we can't control, into action, which we can. Module three in the book is about systems. The system, systems thinking, system leadership, the stuff of an MBA in high-performing organisations, right? So what is the system? The system, according to this book, is how everything fits together, Systems leaders see differently. They focus on how the puzzle pieces fit together and join them up in a unique way. It's described like this in the book. Your organisation is not the sum of its interconnected parts. 
it's the product of the relationships between those parts. Systems leadership is about changing the connections in the system to do better. Alicia uses this analogy. An architect doesn't design six rooms and sticks them together to make a house. She designs a house that's interconnected. And if change is needed, she changes the room and how they connect to make it work together better. A systems leader never takes anything on face value. They ask bigger, better questions. They have a gift for seeing the bigger picture and understanding how it all fits together. So tips for taking a systems view. First, self-awareness and understanding. Understand how complicit you actually are in maintaining the status quo. Next, interrogate what's going on. Don't assume a single issue, cause or solution. Ask why a lot to help get to the root cause of things. Ask, so what? Really understand whether something matters and the impact. Ask, is it though? Pull assumptions to bits and remember, never take things at face value. Let's dig into this and a couple of the other modules in the book in a bit more detail with our conversation with Alicia now. So welcome Alicia Mackay. I love the subtitle of your book, which is Leadership Lessons That Cut Through the Crap. So looking forward to cutting through the crap with you today. So my first question is always, where in the world are you and what's the view out your window? I am in Wellington, New Zealand, in central Wellington. And we are in an incredible building in a space that we have here in town with, we call it Bowie, and we call it Bowie because there are three David Bowie faces painted on the wall outside, so you might be familiar with the building. Uh, and the view at my window is the back of the Fortune Favours Brewery and Bar. Let's get into it. And my first oh. thing is around, you know, the whole title is about why you don't need an MBA. And... Um, I guess in lots of worlds, people think you need an MBA to be a strategic leader. Why do you think they don't need that? Well, I mean, the title's a little bit cheeky and it is me being controversial for the sake of it in some ways. But in reality, I think what I've identified in my work is that there is a fairly serious capability gap, particularly with senior leaders. And that gap tends to be strategic skills. So that's how we think and what we see and how we respond to change and think long-term. The thing that's particularly challenging about those skills is that those are the things we need the most as we advance in seniority, but they're also the things that we don't teach. And so there is a bunch of capabilities that we currently see as being innate or we assume people have them by virtue of their seniority and by the time you're a second or third tier leader saying no one's actually taught me how to make decisions or oh, I don't know what strategy is it's not the done thing and so what tends to happen is people get to a particular stage in their career and they go right I want to get to the top what do I need to do to give me the boost and so they start looking for things like executive education or leadership development programs to give them that boost and what I find um, to be quite concerning is that our options aren't, they haven't changed to keep up with the way the world has changed. And particularly MBAs and other forms of ex like long run executive education, they're run by massive institutions that are very bureaucratic and don't change quickly, right? And so it's very much a come and sit here for three years and we will read you 
lectures off a PowerPoint slide and it's going to cost you a fortune and um, we're going to teach you things. You will know more things when you leave. And I mean, in my opinion, we shouldn't learn anything we could buy, right? And so if you can buy a finance expert or a social media expert or a marketing expert and you want to be at the top of any business or organisation, you don't need to be an expert in those things. And if you go and do an MBA and spend a year learning how to be a marketing whiz, when what you really need to know is how to steer a business through crisis, that's not a good use of anyone's time. So I think universities are still trapped in that model of uh, the value lies in the things you know. And as universities, we are the repositories of information and we will store the information and we will give some to you. It kind of doesn't work now that all the information we need is just kind of there at our fingertips. And so what is the value of that education now and what should we be equipping people with? So in your book, you pluck out a few things to equip people with. And mm -hmm. before we dive into those, wondering how you landed on those things. Uh, trial and error and more reading and research than I'd probably like to admit um, is, the, is the short answer. But no, um, if we look at particularly some of the really, um, the really available data, if you look at things like um, the World Economic Forum's Future of Jobs reporting um, and, and those kind of reports, we see that when we're tracking the demand and, and significance of particular skills over time, there's a few that always rise to the top. And those are things around creativity, judgment and decision-making, agility and flexibility in response to change. Um, and those particular skills all link into this skill set of, um, of strategic capability. But there are still operational and technical requirements for anyone who does any job. And and what I've been particularly influenced by in thinking about how to balance those things out is some work by Kaiser and Overfield in the Leadership Versatility Index, where they have a great series of works around what they call strengths overused. And it's going, look, some of us are better on the operational, others are better on the strategic. Some of us are great on the influence, others are great on the technical and how things work. What we need is not to say that any of those things are better or worse than the other, but to make sure that we've got the right balance. And what tends to happen is we're rewarded for developing a particular skill set and we overdevelop that one. And so I want to be careful about saying these skills are more important than the other skills you know. I'm not saying that. I'm saying these skills are the things you probably haven't been taught and you've probably overinvested in some other ones. And it might be time to do a bit of this. Yeah, and I want to pick up on a couple of those skill sets and hopefully not overbalanced, but yeah, keen to talk about flexibility and decision making in particular. Um, and we'll get to that in a minute. I guess one thing that I loved in the scene setting of the book was when you talked about encouraging leaders to enter the arena and what you meant by that, if you could just describe that, because I really, I, I really liked that. Yeah, so what's really interesting in narrative, whether it's fiction writing or um, screenwriting, is that most stories are driven in one of two ways. So they're either a plot-driven story, which is, you know, your classic whodunit, right, pacing together to find out who, who did the murder or what's gone on. So that's, that's plot-driven. Um, or character-driven stories, which are following the development of a particular person's journey, following a main protagonist across a... Uh, and I think if we look at management science and leadership thinking over a number of decades, we can see that 
we've kind of gone on this trajectory where initially we were quite plot driven to use that analogy where we focused on what are the contracts and the rules and the policies and the processes you know how do you set up a good workplace and then in the last couple of decades we've kind of shifted into a more character driven story approach which is where we've gone what is your disc profile what Myers-Briggs are you how do you find out what dot color your team is and how do you work with people to make that happen right so it's a very people focused approach but the third and lesser known format of, of narrative fiction is what they call the arena driven story and in the arena driven story it's driven by the context or the environment that the story is set in and so rather than being about the people or the things it's about the environment that you live in and how you shift in response to that. So um, I think about Survivor would be a really silly um, example there where the people are there, but they are at the whims of whatever's happening around them. And I think that when it comes to leadership, that's the shift that we need to make now. We've, we've done the plot driven thing. We've done the character driven thing. If the last two years have shown us anything it's that it doesn't matter how good you are or how great your business is if you don't have the capacity to be attuned to your context and to shift with it not fight against it then you will be out of business and if we look at covid and the difference between the organizations that went haha right and switched models and sent people home and ready to go and those that just went right it's a really good example of that arena driven thing which is going do you know what we're just actors we're just actors and all of this stuff is going to keep happening and we don't have agency over this we don't have control over it so we need to make sure that we're ready to be part of this so that that leads really nicely into this whole idea of flexibility from the way i read yeah. the book and and look at your thinking so you talk about flexibility being a key skill and interested to know what that looks like like how do you describe flexibility based on all the research that you've done yeah, so flexibility, I mean, you could sub out a few different buzzwords in there. Uh, it's very trendy at the moment. So you can talk about versatility or adaptability or adaptable leadership or agile leadership. There's a bunch of different buzzwords you can use. And that kind of doesn't matter. But the, the gist of that is about our ability to respond to change. And so the way that I define flexibility, and you don't need an MBA, is your ability to bend without breaking, right? And so if we think about that um, attunement or awareness stuff, think about the context, the arena, um, this is where flexibility comes into play because it requires us to be able to move with it and not just to cope, not just to be okay when things change, to be great because of change, not in spite of it, right? So it's not we survived COVID, it's thanks to COVID, here we are, right? And so if we think about the core components of flexibility, I reckon there's three, there's three main things. So there's awareness, right? And that's, there's a couple of brands of that. And it's your external awareness, which is that context piece we're talking about. And it's amazing how often or how easy it is to never really look out the window. You know, it's what's happening in my industry, what's happening more broadly. Is the legislation going to shift? Is there a new competitor on the horizon? Um, are people asking different things? Are our customers behaving in different ways, right? It's this external one. And if we're not plugged, like snow melts from the edges, if we're not plugged into that, then we're sitting ducks. And then there's the internal awareness. And that's what are my strengths and what am I not great at? What are the ways that I'm conducting myself that are potentially rubbing people the wrong way? And being good at one form of awareness 
doesn't necessarily mean you're good at the other. So you might be great at that, but just shocking at knowing yourself. Or you might be a great uh, introvert, lots of introspection, very good, but you've got no idea what's happening outside the door. And so we need that constant awareness and attunement to context if we want to even think about being flexible. Otherwise, we don't know what we're being flexible to. From there, I reckon there's a couple of other things. We talk about awareness, agency, and resilience, yeah? So agency is about, not about taking control of the uncontrollable, but it's knowing what your responsibility is, right? So what I see with leaders is there's a real spectrum of agency. And so if we think about change response, it's everything from, I can't do this, right? So these are the people that just completely lost it when the pandemic hit, to I have to do this, which is like, fine, we'll cope, but we really much prefer things to be the way they were that I'm good at. Or there's the cool, I'm learning something new, I'm trying something out. And this is the agency of going, you know what, there's a lot out there that I can't do anything about, um, but what am I going to choose to show up and be part of today? What's my bit? And then the resilience thing, and these all sort of link together quite beautifully in a wee web. The resilience thing is not, because this is a really overused word at the moment, so I'm be careful with it. So the way that I use resilience as a concept is similar to um, Nicholas Taleb's idea of anti-fragility. So in anti-fragile, Taleb talks about how the opposite of being fragile is not being strong. The opposite of being fragile is being anti-fragile, which means that you benefit from an external shock. So it's not that you can absorb an external shock, but it's that you grow and benefit from it. And in psychology literature, there's a similar idea with post-traumatic growth, which is that there are some people who go through something awful like you know, divorce or death or disability, and they come out of it better, not worse. I firmly believe that should be our goal, that we need to aim for being better as a result of what happens to us rather than just surviving it. And there's a Nietzsche, a Nietzsche phrase, um, amor fati, which it loosely translates to love your fate. And I just love this idea because from a very practical level, do you know what? It's happening anyway, right? Yes, there are a lot of things, very shit, but they're happening anyway. So if you get to choose how you feel about it, why not choose to love it? Like, it's up to you. How are you going to do it? You might as well choose to love it. Write a better story. Make this chapter break down and growth ahead of stage next, you know? So I love that. That's such an interesting perspective, and I haven't heard that before. So I really love that, Alicia. Thank you. Um, you talked about agency, and how, how do you build agency? How do you grow that? Oh, that's such a good question. The easiest way to build agency is to trick yourself into it. <laughs> How do you do that? <laughs> so there's a, through language. So there's a section in the book called Words Create Worlds, which is actually a phrase from my favourite Jonathan Franzen novel, uh, Freedom. But the idea here is that language isn't just a way that we express our thinking. It's also a way that we make meaning for ourselves. And I was building on this, I did this experiment. Um, I was building on something I'd read in Atomic Habits by James Clear, where he's using language as a device to provoke gratitude. And he says, every time you find yourself wanting to say, I have to, try saying, I get to, right? So instead of, I have to cook dinner, it's, I get to cook dinner, which is a complete mindset shift, right? We go, oh, yes, because I'm home and there's food in the fridge. Well, I suppose it's quite good, right? And so I did a bit of um, experimentation with that 
in my own life and went, oh, actually that works quite well. And then we expanded that into the leadership development stuff we were doing and thinking, is there patterns in the way that people speak and the way that people think and the way they respond to change, right? And, and there is. And so there's kind of this, I won't or I can't kind of level of, yeah, right? There's no agency in that. I won't or I can't, there's no agency in it. I have to, I have to work from home. I have to pick the kids up. There's a little bit of agency in that and that you've decided to be active. Um, but there's, there's nothing very empowering about I have to, right? You've still surrendered the responsibility for that control elsewhere. But when we start to shift our language into saying things like I choose to, or I'm trying to, or I'm learning to, that simple shift in language is such a powerful device for changing our own sense of agency in a situation. So you can say, I have to work from home and it's shit, right? Or you can say, I get to restructure my work day or I choose to change my work hours because of working from home now, right? I'm choosing to set up an office in my garage because I think it will be useful for me to have a different workspace. I'm choosing to pick the kids up on Mondays and so I actually get up at five and put a couple of hours in before the rest of the family gets up. I'm learning to change my work environment when I'm on my own so I stay motivated. I'm trying to block out my afternoons with no Zoom meetings. In them. And can you see how the difference in that from I have to work from home completely shifts the way you feel about your situation? So I, and so I can... our, our brains are amazing because when we say things, our brain automatically believes them. Right? So we say it and our brain goes, well, that must be true. It came out of my mouth. <laughs> that goes for good and bad. <laughs> totally, totally. totally. So, so if you're being a negative Nancy all day, your brain believes you. Yeah. So as you talk about those things, you know, I choose to, I'm learning to, yeah. I'm trying to, yeah. even just me hearing you say that and me applying it to a few things, just as we're talking, I can feel myself yeah. lift. So I, yeah, I think that's, that's really cool. And um, yeah, I, re I really like that. So thank you. Um, you are welcome. Now we've got a lot to get through. So I did want to just uh, move on to the decision making piece. And mm -hmm. um, I guess, you know, if you think about MBAs and strategy and decision makers, you know, it can create a big thing, whatever that thing is. Um, what, what, what are you observing amongst leaders about the quality of decisions and where decisions are being made? My observation would be that it's all a little bit ad hoc. So good decisions or good strategic direction, it does, it obviously happens, uh, but it's a bit hit or miss, right? It's just like throwing something at the wall to see what sticks. And there seems to be a real, a real lack of rigor around the processes that we use to make decisions and what our criteria and our rules are as we go, right? So the most common complaint that I hear going into an organization to do strategy work is just a lack of clarity about direction. And it's teams going, it's not that we're resistant to change. We're being accused of being resistant to change and we're not. We just kind of don't know what you really want from us. And if it was really clear where we were going, away we'd go. But we don't have the confidence to do that because you haven't been clear with us. And if it's not clear here, it's absolutely not clear here. And so to get that clarity of direction and to be really confident that a decision made is a decision made, not something said in a meeting that's going to be relitigated three months later, what we need is confidence in our decision-making process. 
because I think what we get wrong about decisions, which is really important if we look at the, um, the decision science literature, particularly the stuff that comes out of Stanford, is that what defines a good decision is not the outcome. You can't control that. What defines a good decision is the process we use to make it. And good decisions that use good processes statistically and significantly deliver better outcomes overall the decisions that don't, but it doesn't mean you're going to get a good outcome, all right? And those things are independent of each other. So rather than focusing on outcomes and going, well, because this worked, that was a good decision and therefore this person is a good decision maker, what we need to be doing is going, how do we decide things around here? And does that work for us, right? Where does the responsibility sit for particular decisions? How many alternatives do we need to consider? What's the expectation about who's involved in a conversation, right? What's our process for experimentation or piloting or minimum viable experimentation at, at the decision stage? Do we have a process for that? Right? What is the weighting of one criteria over another? Do we know that here in our place, the number one criteria for any good decision is about whether or not it improves the customer experience. And if it doesn't, it doesn't cross the line. Right? And that a second order priority might be um, operational excellence or, you know, and so I think, I mean, this is a long answer, but that ultimately it's about having clarity around process and criteria. And if we do that, everyone's jobs become so much easier. So, so you mentioned a few things there. Is, are those the things that make a good process or is it something else? Yeah, so what makes a good process is clarity about your frame. So what is the decision we're making? What else does it relate to? How does it connect to our big picture goals? Why is this important to solve now instead of other things, right? So the frame thing is, is the context of our decision. The space, which is who's in the room, what is the process we use, um, who gets to make calls about what we go ahead with and what we don't have we created a space where we've got diversity of perspective and it's safe for there to be contribution from the right places are we testing our thinking right so frame and space and the third piece is action and action is the piece that i think is missing from what a lot of our decision processes look like internally whether it's in government or in business we we think the decision made whether it's the board decision so they've approved a report that's not a decision made yet because nothing's happened. And what holds people back from making good decisions from a process point of view is generally that they want to make things much bigger than they need to be. So they want to know the whole thing at the beginning, right? We want to know the 10-year the plan or the entire strategy or the entire product development. Whereas what we know about successful decision processes is that we want to make the minimum viable one and then try it out. Because there's not a single decision that we can possibly consider all the alternatives or risks for. And even if we could, we'd be wrong because we've got so many biases and heuristics and things going on. It's impossible, right? Even if we had all the information, we'd still make a, a flawed decision. That's fine. What we need to do is build in that capacity for trying the minimum viable one and then going back. So people think decision processes go one, two, three, four, five, done. But in reality, they go get to here, oh, oh, hey, there we go. <laughs> that's how it should work. That's not a sign of a process that's failing. It's a sign of a process that's robust, provided we get to the end. And so if we think about the framing, 
the space and the action, and we're able to tick off each of those components in the way that we design the decision process, then we're much more likely to get a good outcome. And what I like about it is it sucks all the personal out of it. This is not about you, mate. It's not about whether you make good decisions or how good your judgment is. It's can you engineer a process to make a good decision? All strategic leadership is really about is knowing how and when to ask better questions. You don't have to know anything any more than anybody else does. In fact, knowing more things may be a handicap. What you need to be able to do is ask better questions and to ask them regularly. That's the skill. Thank you, Alicia. That was just beautiful. And you are so yeah, welcome. So much richness in there. And thank you so, so much for giving us your time. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. There's loads more thinking and insights in the book, but here's our You Don't Need an MBA Take 5 in 60 Seconds to sum up what we've covered. 1. Leadership, business and organisations are changing fast. Understanding the internal and external context is key to strategic leadership. 2. Flexibility. Get attuned to what's going on inside and around you. Take responsibility, seek learning, embrace change and uphold values. Three, build agency. Trick yourself into it. Use language like, I choose to, I'm trying to, or I'm learning to, rather than I have to. Four, decision making. Good decisions are about learning from the past, making choices in the present, and planning for the future. Five, ask questions to interrogate the organisational system. Ask but why a lot to get to the root cause. Ask so what to understand the impact and ask is it though to pull apart assumptions. That's our Books at Work episode on You Don't Need an MBA Done and Dusted. Please give me feedback. Check out booksatwork.co.nz and follow us on Instagram, Books That Work. I'm Anna Hughes and that's Books That Work, Making Work Better.